a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. This is a place where if I'm doing my job correctly, at the end of this program, you should come away much more certain about who you are and what you stand for, as opposed to simply being worked up and more certain about who or what you oppose. It's a subtle difference, but uh, I I strive to to hit that uh, note every single day. Not so much to tell you what to think, but to encourage you to think clearly and independently for yourself. Now, this show is made possible by great sponsors, including LifesavingFood.com, also the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, HSLAmmo.com, SewingAndQuiltingCenter.com, and MonticelloCollege.org. So, before I go too far, let me just pose a question here, because I know there are people checking me out for the first time. Okay, Brian, who, who are you and what are you all about? Let me tell you who I am. I am nobody. I'm not famous. I'm not rich. I am not. Uh, in, I'm not even good looking. So I, I don't have. I don't have a lot of the the qualities that uh, that would normally define you know some kind of a guru. I'm not a guru either. All I am is a guy who is very keenly aware of the importance of our individual liberties, our God given liberties, and uh, for whatever reason, I have uh, I have grown up with the understanding that. One of the most important things that we can do is stand up for our individual freedoms and assert them and utilize them to improve the world in ways that each of us can do only as individuals. So if, you know, if someone says, well, you know, what are you against? Collectivism is not my thing. So I'm much more for championing the rights of the individual. So specifically, personal liberty, freedom of conscience, private property rights. These are just a few of the things on which I, you know, rest my thinking. And I believe that this should be for everyone to decide for themselves, you know, if they want to be free. Don't believe in one-size-fits-all approaches. So I, I try to speak the language of freedom. I believe that we can learn a great deal from those who came before us, both from what they did right as well as from their mistakes. But I think we are in a very crucial uh, period of history right now. This is this is one of those turning points, you know, where there's there's crisis, there's upheaval, there's uh, a lot that hangs in the balance right now. So what I'm trying to do is my part as a person who cares about this kind of stuff and has uh, has a platform from which to speak. I'm trying to to use my time and my talents and my passions to promote freedom, greater freedom for everybody regardless of whatever subcategory they may put themselves into based on skin color, identity, whatever it is. I believe we're all children of God and that this is the greatest gift that we've been given. The ability to think and act for ourselves, and I believe that anything peaceful should be on the table. People who initiate violence and people who commit fraud should be held accountable. They should be made to restore whoever they've harmed. But that's the only time where I really believe that that government should get involved is in making sure that justice prevails and, and then only to the extent that's necessary to either make someone whole or to hold someone accountable for actual provable harm that they've committed. 
Now, it took me about three minutes to, to outline this is where I'm coming from, but that's a pretty simple philosophy. And I know there are people who say, well, you know, that doesn't really uh, relate to the rest of the world, so I, you know, good luck with that. But this stems from an understanding that politics doesn't bring happiness. It was a few years back I started to understand that politics does very little to advance humanity in any way. And nothing I've experienced in that time has since persuaded me to reconsider that notion. I have to tip my hat to Paul Rosenberg, who first opened my eyes to the regressive nature of politics when he pointed out how it keeps our minds forever focused on evil and carefully avoids pointing us toward the good. You think about anything that you've seen or heard or read in the past week that was of a political nature. I mean, seriously, pick anything. And can you name one thing that wasn't in some way mired in base instincts like fear or tribalism or or status? In fact, how many of the things you encountered on social media lately embody the tactic of transforming anybody with a differing point of view into some degrading, distorted caricature of who they really are? And it works both ways. Trust me, it works both ways here. But the fact that so many people have come to embrace this tendency as normal is a really strong indicator of just how deeply this pathology has infected and eroded our character. This is why people cheer when they see the state abusing, uh, for instance, the truckers in Canada. They look at that and they're like, oh, yeah, good, they're getting what's coming to them. And, and they do this with the tone deafness of, of someone who doesn't even begin to comprehend that, first of all, it could be used against them and will be used against them at some point. But it also puts them in the same category of people who cheered when Rosa Parks was arrested. for How dare she sit where she wasn't supposed to on the bus? We got rules. You got to follow the rules if you don't want to have trouble with the law. It's the same exact mentality. By the way, Paul Rosenberg was the first person I've ever read who actually made a very solid case that in 5,000 years of human advancement, politics is the one thing that really has stayed about the same. It, it remains mired in Bronze Age thinking because it comes down to men seeking to rule over others by violence, which, by the way, you saw what that looks like in practice in Canada. Now, if you don't believe me, that's fine, but I would ask you, can we just put this to the test so here's a question. If, if a majority of people complain enough in the right ways, will a politician put magic words on paper that allows the majority to use violence against those who don't see things their way? Yes or no? Now, what if those who disagree with the magic words on paper are perfectly peaceful in their actions? They can't be shown to have harmed another person or his property. Do you still support sending armed aggressors to either assault or imprison them or to steal their property? in an effort to force them to do what the majority wants? And if the answer to that question is, well, yeah, well, then how could those kinds of actions be described as anything but superstitious, primitive, or even barbaric? I mean, we're talking about a level of maturity that's more suited to cavemen than more civilized, productive people. Grug not happy. Grug club you into submission. Grug apparently works for the RCMP, from based on what I saw over the weekend. So the bottom line here is politics, at least to my thinking, comes down to a collection of violent religious cultists who gather to chant and perform regular reassurance rituals affirming their faith in the magical words of their favorite state gods. But worse, politics keeps us divided and distrustful. In fact, it thrives on keeping us divided, filled with fear and dread that somehow things are going to get worse if we don't chant in unison. 
It teaches us how to feel brave and noble without actually having to have any kind of skin in the game. I mean, the comments on some of the videos of police brutalizing protesters in Canada, as one person put it, this is like walking through Jonestown. That's how disturbing it is. And isn't it curious how the problems supposedly solved by political means never are really resolved? As with most things that become politicized, they just become another power struggle that pits us against the other. And at the end of the day, politics would have us believe that as long as the violence of the state is being directed at that other, our opponents, somehow we're winning. It thrives on the short-sightedness that prevents us from recognizing those same spears that we cheer to see pointed at our political opponents will eventually be pointed at us. And when you have a political dialogue playing out in your mind virtually every hour, I mean, it's hard to distinguish between what's sound and what isn't. I still like how Leonard Reed, you know, described the way to to recognize the difference between what's sound and what isn't. He says, one imperative is the awareness that the higher the objective is, the more dignified the method must be. If we aspire to such a high objective as advancing individual liberty in the free market, we can resort to no lesser method than the power of attraction, the absolute opposite of using propaganda, indoctrination, and half-truths. The fact that uh, pointing out this distinction is almost certain to infuriate the true believers just underscores how politics degrades everything it touches. Now, look, I understand most of us, none of us actually, like to see our choices questioned. And at the same time, none of us makes any kind of meaningful improvement in our own lives or in the world around us till we start asking these kinds of questions. The more dogmatic we are in our thinking, the less likely we are to accept or recognize the kinds of truths that actually change us for the better. Now, it's possible to reduce your political footprint to the point that the negative influences are of minimal consequence in your life. But you have to first make a conscious effort to break the psychological addiction that politics provides. And where politics thrives on conflict and on negativity, we've got to train ourselves to see and celebrate the good and the noble. The positive is found all around us. There's abundant positiveness or positivity, I should say. (laughs) But once we've taken off the political blinders, it's a lot easier to recognize it. So I guess the bottom line here, changing the world for the better doesn't require superstitiously forcing other people to do what we think they ought to do. And if I've noticed anything, is that the folks who figured this out seem to be a lot happier than the ones who haven't yet figured this out. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. As I've mentioned on this program, I've got some great sponsors who make it possible. One of them is LifesavingFood.com. Just got a message from Kendall over the weekend from LifesavingFood.com. Okay, this is this is quite a, quite a deal for my listeners. If you go to the link that we've provided at lifesavingfood.com, you will save 45% on ReadyWise products that you order through him. This is this is a killer deal. Now, this does not include, you know, free shipping and storage, but he makes it worth your while. 45% off retail price on ReadyWise food storage. I mean, look, I'm, I'm not trying to scare anybody, but uh, having something set aside for a rainy day 
seems to make a lot more sense right now than it may have in the past. There are a lot of stuff there that's just in a state of flux. Maybe consider uh, getting yourself squared away. Go to my show notes at thebrianhideshow.com, click on the sponsors uh, link, and go to lifesavingfood.com. So I wanted to share with you uh, a quick excerpt from an email that Paul Rosenberg sent out over the weekend. And like a lot of people, I've, I, I actually had to stop. I had to, I had to totally step away from being online at one point because uh, the stuff that I was seeing coming out of Canada was so disturbing. And it was, it was stirring some really deep anger in me. And I know for some people it's like, oh, good. I haven't felt a good surge of anger like this in a long time. Um, I don't enjoy feeling angry about what I see being done to people. And, and what I saw was, was nothing short of just full on, this is the state flexing its muscle through the use of organized violence. And, you know, people can disagree. Well, I don't think it's right that people should be protesting vaccine mandates or masks or whatever. That's, and to some people, this is what they've reduced it to. It's just these people are upset because they have to wear masks or they're being told to wear masks. No, uh, you might want to step back a little bit further and recognize their very livelihoods are being threatened if they don't conform with what some politician and his magical words on power is commanding them to do, or on paper is commanding them to do. There's a big difference. And it wasn't just mostly peaceful protests. The protests up in Canada have been absolutely peaceful. Now, yes, they've been honking horns. But what we're seeing here is the, the, people, the people who are trying to dominate the world right now exist in uh, a digital kind of reality. They are, uh, they're not in physical reality. They, they are the thinkers, right? This is the, uh, the Zoom class. The virtual ruling class is actually how I've seen it described. Whereas the truckers represent the physical world, and it's the physicals versus the virtuals. And when the truckers parked their rigs in front of, you know, the parliament there in, in Canada, essentially they were putting a very solid boulder of reality right on the virtuals' front lawn and saying, okay, go ahead and remove this without assistance. You think you've got the Jedi mind powers, but no, you don't. And the truckers effectively called the bluff of the virtuals who don't really have the power to move things with their minds. So what did the virtuals resort to? They sent out their stormtroopers to physically assault and arrest and threaten. And, you know, and it doesn't stop there. You know, you have, you have leaders within that virtual class, the ruling class, that are, are saying, you know, if you participated or you supported this protest in any way, we're going to find out who you are and we're going to come after you and hold you accountable. Wow. I mean, gee. You know, as we watched cities burn in America in 2020, that kind of attitude would have been uh, really something to see. And it would have been it would have been disturbing from the standpoint of, uh, look, if someone is peacefully protesting, and I believe the folks in Canada really were peacefully protesting, as opposed to looting, rioting, brutalizing people in the streets. Why the heavy-handed crackdown? Well, here's what Paul Rosenberg has to say. He says, over the past few days, we've seen the tyrant of Canada and his minions invoking martial law, seizing bank accounts, threatening to kill the dogs of people they dislike. Seriously, telling people, if you brought your dog, we'll take it. And if you haven't claimed it in eight days, well, it's considered relinquished, so we'll put it to sleep. They've been referencing Satan figures, Trump, and telling protest supporters, you ought to be afraid. 
He says their wannabe friends are doxing and harassing people who donated money to a fully, not mostly, peaceful protest after someone hacked into a donation service and stole the names of all those who dared oppose the tyranny. And it was also clear that businesses, the Canadian military and policemen, have declined to play thug against the protesters. That is, except for, for those who apparently were brought in, took off their insignia, took off their their uh, name tags and um, you know masked their faces. Because we all know deeds like this are best done in the dark. And it was wonderful that there were people who turned their backs. I mean, the Canadian military basically told their government, get stuffed. We're not going to go out there and, and crack down on these people. A lot of tow truck companies told them, we're not going to participate either. So they went out and co-opted tow trucks, took off the license plates, took off any identifying markers. Yeah, it's, it's, it's getting intense. And Paul Rosenberg says it's wonderful and it's necessary. So many policemen refused to play thug, but it didn't stop the tyrant from seizing thousands or hundreds of bank accounts and so on. And his point is the tyrant wasn't stopped cold because he had a dozen ways to destroy his enemies without the enforcers and then to keep pressure on millions at a time with continuing propaganda. And this happened precisely because of a 100 safety-conscious choices. We have to do something about all those money launderers, whoever they are, so we have control of the financial system. The kidnapper on every corner, the drug dealer in every schoolyard, the conspiracy theorist in every other house. But wiring the system to protect us from these armies of monsters just made everyone vulnerable to the tyrant seated at the center of it all. Now, if you need some clarity here, here's the clarity. Paul Rosenberg says, it's not supposed to be easy to seize people's money. It's not supposed to be easy to indict people or to condemn them en masse and to justify it all in a rage-addicted and compliant infosphere. It's never supposed to be fast and easy to censor people. But we allowed this kind of pre-wiring for justice to bring not just Canada, but other Western countries to the same state of mind. Paul Rosenberg says, I'm old enough to remember a world in which people weren't terrified all the time where one half of the populace didn't despise and wish doom on the other half. When we tried to org- not to organize ourselves around Satan figures because we knew that's the road to hell. He says, I also remember when people learned how to trust and how to be trusted. But we lost all of this when fear became the driving force in human affairs, as it has been in the lead-up to every tyranny. I think the most disturbing thing that, uh, that I have seen over the week, and there was actually two things that were, were really tough. That's why I had to actually break away and go on a little bit of a media fast. Number one was seeing fellow human beings being trampled. and I mean, literally trampled underfoot or under the hoods of mounted police officers on their horses. That was tough. That was tough to see. And it, and it made me glad that I wasn't there because I'd probably be dead or in jail um, to, I, I don't know that I could stand by and witness something like that without, without drawing the kind of attention to myself that would land me in jail or, or in, in a puddle of blood on the ground. It, it really is upsetting. But the really disturbing thing is the silence of all of these leaders of other countries and, and even you know major cities. Western political leaders have said nothing about what has been taking place there in Ottawa. And that silence is chilling. This is, it's, it's the same kind of, whoa, what's going on? When you have a two-year-old 
and you can hear them playing in the next room and you know and everything's good the time to be concerned isn't when you hear your your two-year-old clanging pans together or doing something the time to get concerned as a parent is when it's like oh it's quiet what is it <laughs> what is my kid up to and then you go in oh i see you discovered the paint can oh my goodness you got it open and you are busy painting the big screen tv wow well, it's the same sort of principle. When Western leaders are silent about absolute brutality being visited upon peaceful people in the streets, why are they so quiet? I can only assume it's because they're looking at that and going, hey, hmm, maybe that's something we can put to use. And since there's a trucker's convoy apparently forming up to uh, head to Washington starting this week, we might just see if there's a similar response waiting. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I feel like I'm just walking this razor's line between launching into a full-on rant... And giving you uh, encouragement and, uh, you know, light on what's happening around us in a crisp, upbeat fashion. I'll try to split the difference here, but very disturbing to see what happened over the weekend in uh, in Canada. And when I want a really good take on, on what's happening, I have found Tom Luongo is a guy who has a very solid take. In fact, he asks the question, is the Great Reset becoming the Great Awakening now that we have the trampling of the truckers? He says, there are few words to describe the depth of Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's depravity. He says, in fact, I'm not even going to try. This is a person who is so thoroughly ill-prepared for its job, it doesn't even know how to properly read from the prepared script. And it was all fun and games, making Trudeau equals Hitler memes, until this weekend when Trudeau's enforcers on horseback trampled an old woman. Now, any man with a sense of decency doesn't send men on horseback into a crowd. The only things worse than that are the people who are commenting on it with some variation of, well, she deserved it. Yeah, she could have gone home. Yes, she could have gotten the clot shot. Yes, she could have complied with whatever Justin Trudeau told her morality was. But Trudeau could have chosen differently as well, as opposed to acting like a scared little boy worried about facing public ridicule. He could have sacked up and met with the protesters. But instead, he did what all boy emperors have ever done. He chose violence and intimidation. And those who blame the victims are worse than Justin Trudeau. They'll never admit it, even to themselves. But their belief in the state is, as a moral arbiter, is shaken to its foundation when things like this happen. So they bluster about playing stupid games, win stupid prizes. Empathy? Who needs that in Davos's brave new world? Now, those against the protests have their reasons. None of them, however, are morally justified. Because if you allow the state and immoral construction at its core to define your morality, you will forever have to justify tyranny in order to remain on the side of the angels. Blaming the victim is the easiest thing to do. How many rapists have claimed, well, she had it coming? How many abusers every day blame the people they abuse because they're too ashamed to admit they're in the wrong? So Tom Luongo says, look, we are all unclean now. Part, the part of the Great Reset pertaining to COVID-19 was always about amplifying the divisions between people. To create a new religion around it. Its sacrament is the vaccine. Its Lord's Prayer is demonizing ivermectin and trusting the science. Its vestment 
is the mask. It's amen is in the name of public health. But he says it's led to such dehumanizing that those who do not comply with the high priest now deserve their fate. In fact, uh, Mario Draghi in Italy declared the unvaccinated to no longer be a part of Italian society. Half a million unjabbed Italians over 50 last week were suspended from work and left without salary because of their COVID policies. Mario Draghi, quote, the unvaccinated are not part of our society. And in a way, Tom Luongo says, sadly, Trudeau's supporters are correct. One always has the choice to accept the abuse if the alternative is death. That woman didn't go to Parliament Square with that choice in mind because she sadly still believed in the religion of the state as a subordinate partner with the people in shaping society. Well, those illusions were fully trampled in the eyes of millions around the world. And politically, there's no going back for Justin Trudeau. He, along with his supporters, will hide behind their cope and refuse to accept responsibility for their actions. The Ottawa police are doing the same thing, putting out disinformation about, well, you know, someone threw a bicycle at the horse and tried to trip it. The horse wasn't injured, though, you'll be glad to know. Yeah, what about the old lady laying back there with her walker that was trampled on? Well, you know, she was doing unlawful things, and we did what we had to do. Just following orders. Yeah, where have I heard that before? Luongo says at this point, those still on the job in Ottawa made a choice as well to side with the tyrants and embrace their own inner one. Many of them will finally enjoy getting to mete out the violence that festers in their souls. After all, it's why many of them became cops in the first place. And I know that sounds unfair, by the way. I know that sounds like, well, you're painting all cops with a broad brush here. If you haven't seen the videos of police violently taking people to the ground and not just, you know, handcuffing them and leading them up, kneeing them, throwing hard, hard knee blows into their sides and into their face, looking around to see if anybody's filming. They're, they're arresting journalists. Well, we'll tell you everything you need to know at our press conference. You guys can come collect your stenographer's notes and then go out and tell the story we want you to tell. There are some people who are drawn to the opportunity to exercise that kind of dominion over others. And you saw it on full display this weekend in Canada. Luongo says those who still have their humanity are now deciding whether to go along or walk away. If they go along, they will lose what's left of their humanity, just like men did during World War II. And their true face has been revealed. Meanwhile, as bad as things are in Canada, in New Zealand, Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern tried to follow Trudeau's script to quell protests in Wellington. But from all reports there, her efforts failed completely. And she convened a meeting of essentially her National Security Council on Thursday of last week. No solid reports of what went down. Therefore, the silence of that outcome of that meeting speaks volumes. It likely means the military weren't willing to get involved, just like what happened to Trudeau in Canada. Moreover, New Zealand's police commissioner, Andrew Coster, came out with a public statement saying negotiation was the path forward, something Arden has rejected out of hand, just like Trudeau, both of them reading from the same Davos script. Coster said negotiations and de-escalation were the only safe ways to resolve the protest, and he would continue to talk to the protesters. Police say there were about 800 protesters, but believed those numbers could rise over the weekend. Coster said any police action, any forceful police action, could risk injuries to the public and could turn a largely peaceful protest violent and could increase the numbers of protesters. 
Now, Ottawa Police Chief Peter Slowly tried to hold the line against Trudeau's megalomania earlier last week, but it resulted in him resigning, presumably because he wouldn't give the order to roust up the protesters and beat heads and a more pliant enforcer was put in his place. The result is what we were witnessing this weekend in Ottawa. And yes, he does have video clips if you want to see this for yourself. You, you can't justify the kind of violence that is being visited on these people. It's just, it's completely out of proportion to whatever offense has been offered by the protesters. And the casual obscenity in the clip that he links to is the, the newscaster's commentary about police restoring order. I mean, even our American media is like, well, police finally have moved to restore order in Ottawa. Yeah, how did they do that? Well, we don't want to talk about that. We just want you to understand that order needed to be restored. Oh, good. Are the trains running on time? Mussolini would be happy to know if they are. Tom Luongo says the reality is that Ardern and Trudeau are both hanging on by a thread because public opinion already has turned against them. The only thing propping Trudeau up at this point is the shock of this at the speed which with these escalated events. But that shock is going to wear off here very soon. And if Parliament doesn't act to limit or censure or simply get rid of this guy, Canadians are going to have a much bigger problem on their hands. Tom Luongo says, too many Canadians are still asking, is this Canada? When they should be stating, this is not Canada. So he says, stop asking for permission to feel outraged and feel the outrage. In New Zealand, the veil of authority for Arden is thinner thanks to Trudeau's mistakes in Ottawa. Now, no doubt they're seeing the same things we are and they want no part of it. And the knives will come out for Arden quickly if she doesn't back down. Tom Luongo says, I say all the time, spooks start civil wars, militaries end them. In Canada, the civil war there is just beginning. What we've not seen in New Zealand means it's likely over before anyone realized they were in one. The Great Reset rests on tyrants like Justin Trudeau to win through fear, intimidation, and the banal corruption of weak people to support them. With each image of peaceful people being trampled under the boot heel of Canadian stormtroopers, more people awaken from the slumber of the comfortable lie that the government protects us from chaos. I mean, keep in mind, until the cops showed up, there was no violence. None. That's what state violence looks like, folks. That's what the state is, says Tom Luongo. Violence. It always has been. This is why Klaus Schwab and his minions like Trudeau, Ardern, and others will fail. There is no law these people recognize. There is no restraint on their behavior they feel is justified for their holy cause. And he says the sooner we accept that, like many of the truckers who organized this protest, the sooner we can all begin bridging the divide. He says, I'll leave the last word for Viva Fry, who says, I've spent the last 12 days streaming from Ottawa. I did not see one shred of violence until the police showed up. Now, for some people, you might be hearing your pulse thundering in your ears. And, you know, my job here is not to, to get you just angry and stirred up, but let's, let's recognize injustice. And one of the truest tests of whether or not you are a person who is actually committed to freedom is whether you are willing to call out bad behavior on the part of the state and its organized violence when it's being directed at those people you would consider opponents. Smart people understand if it can be done to them, it can be done to me. And they'll come down on the side of, I'd rather see the state limited than, you know, watch my opponents suffer. That's the sifting that's taking place right now. 
This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. So, we've all had a pretty big object lesson in the difference between democracy and liberty. Politicians love to talk about democracy. Why? They're the very, the very essence of who we are is democracy. And on January 6th, our democracy was threatened. And, you know, that's, that's what Trudeau has actually been saying in Canada. These truckers are threatening our democracy. How come you never hear politicians talk about liberty? I got a great article here from Gary Gallus. This was published on the American Institute for Economic Research website. The Democracy Illusion. And it says, in America, democracy or democratic are among the most common words used to justify or endorse positions or policies. Democratic is attached as an adjective whenever something is considered good politically. In other words, like our democratic way of life. And undemocratic is attached to things being criticized, including almost everything that represents a loss for just about anyone. Americans are constantly told we must fight for democracy. Leading up to elections, politicians extol the democratically expressed wisdom of the electorate they hope to represent. Those that selected often then ignore, that those elected rather often ignore and then or overturn. He says, we're told that the American Revolution was for democracy, that people have died for our democratic right to vote, that each vote was crucial, that if you don't vote, you don't care about America, and so on. We even hear proposals to replace the Electoral College because it isn't democratic enough. Now, such rhetoric ignores the fact that democracy can destroy liberty as well as preserve it. For a minor example, he says, ask, would I have more or less liberty if a majority vote picked my clothes each morning and my dinner each night? More importantly, ask, would I have more or less liberty if that's how my religion, my spouse, or my job was chosen, or how my take-home pay was determined? Currently, the democratic equals I approve approach has turned into a cottage industry about how America and the world face massive threats to our democracy. Good examples are President Biden's statement that democracy doesn't happen by accident. We have to defend it, fight for it, strengthen it, renew it. And his summit on democracy, ignoring the irony of how many things his administration has imposed or tried to impose against the wishes of most Americans. It's also illustrated by a Google search that turned up over 4.5 million hits for the term threat to democracy. Now, unfortunately, while democratically determining who will be entrusted with the reins of government may generally be the best hope to enable governments to change without bloodshed, although the precedent set by John Adams' acceptance of electoral defeat at the hands of Thomas Jefferson is also a critical American precedent, democracy is not America's core. Liberty is. Democracy from America's founding on has been important only insofar as it served and defended liberty. You cannot take seriously our founders' words without coming to that conclusion. For instance, George Washington's statement that your union ought to be considered as a main prop to your liberty. The love of the one ought to endear you to the preservation of the other. It's why we have the Constitution, particularly the Bill of Rights. After all, what if the majority decided democratically, whatever they decided was always to be law, there'd be no purpose in restrictions that explicitly put certain rights against government impositions beyond majority determination. 
It's also why Alexis de Tocqueville wrote that liberty, not democracy, was the central reason for our country's greatness in democracy in America. Today, however, many fail to recognize liberty's primacy over democracy. And the lessons history teaches us about losing liberty despite or sometimes because of democracy. That also makes it important to refocus attention on that central issue that gets so little attention in policy discussions. He says the equation of democracy with liberty fails to distinguish between two quite different things. One is whether there's excessive power in government hands. The other is how those who will administer the government will be selected. Of crucial importance is that electing those who will wield excessive power does not eliminate or even necessarily reduce the threats such power poses to citizens the government is supposed to protect. After all, the test of dominant preference looks a lot like might makes right, which stands in sharp contrast with liberty. Or as James Bovard put it, democracy must be something more than two wolves and a sheep voting on what to have for dinner. Democratic determination also means that the wishes of those who are in the minority on any issue are irrelevant to the outcome, rather than providing any significant voice in a result that they will be forced to accept. Now, since all of us are in the minority on some issues, that's hardly an ideal to aim for. The importance of understanding the very large gap between liberty and democracy was well expressed by F.A. Harper in his 1949 Liberty, A Path to Its Recovery. Quote, consider all the acts of the units, uh, sorry, consider all the acts of all the units of government for one day. How many among them were the proper functions of a liberal government? In how many instances did you have any opportunity or right to participate in the decision? If you disagreed with the decision, in how many instances was there anything that you could do about it? Your liberty in the process is that you enjoy the right to be forced to bow to the dictates of others against your wisdom and conscience. That's the direct opposite of liberty. Now, Gary Gallus says, Harper also recognized what is now driving an increasing wedge between democracy and liberty. We must, we must remember that government, even of the best design, should be used only when, only where, rather, in the interests of liberty, it becomes necessary to arrive at a singleness in pattern of conduct. When we need not all agree about our desires and the trade-offs we're willing to make, which is true for the vast majority of choices, liberty is the best democracy, in that each individual's choices matter. Substituting political democracy for economic democracy when we need not agree on what to do gives each of us less liberty in our lives, which is why federalism and freedom tend to increase or decrease together. Gary Gallus says America is already far beyond what can be justified as advancing our mutual well-being, and our government seems determined to double down on how far it oversteps, a strategy which necessarily shrinks liberty and benefits only liberty and the benefits rather that only liberty can provide. That makes it worth noting that a maximum of democracy means a minimum of reliable protection for citizens' rights, which in turn means a minimum of liberty. If we thought carefully about that, democracy would no longer be the go-to word for good in politics, and liberty might get more attention. I don't think you can find the word democracy anywhere within the Constitution. You find the words republic quite often, but not so much democracy. So in the, in the closing moments here, 
Let me just pose the question to you. Would you cheer? Would you celebrate seeing the power of the state used to punish someone who you are on the opposite side of a particular issue? Would you, would you sit there and, and, and call that a, a good thing? I mean, there's a lot of it. And, and the Twitter sphere, man, it's, it's just, it's toxic. But I don't think you and I should pretend that somehow, you know, we're all above this. We're, we're much more refined. Because I see people on the right who, who they thrive on, on making their opponents on the political left, you know, bend the knee. So I come back to the idea. Politics really doesn't add that much to my life. And the funny thing about it is you point that out to people and some will say, well, uh, Brian, politics is everything. I mean, it sounds naive. You know, you don't focus on the same things that I do. Well, you can call me whatever you want. This is, this is one of the cool things. Because I'm nobody, because I'm just, you know, some guy <laughs> who, who is choosing to think for himself and, and musing aloud for, for the benefit of anybody else who may want to do, do something, you know, likewise. I don't care what people call me. I'm not going to be shamed into embracing something that is ultimately destructive, not just to my own personal liberty, but to the liberty of my children and my children's children. And even to your liberty, even the person who, who disagrees, you know, I, I want them to have liberty to think and act as they choose. And again, anything peaceful should be on the table. Now, it took me a while to get to where, you know, it doesn't affect me. You can call me, I promise you, whatever names you may call me, I've been called that before. And it took, it took a few times to get used to the sting of, wow, this person really does not like me. But I'm totally okay with it. You see, my belief system is such that you don't have to agree for me to still believe that this is a valid belief system and it's a happier way forward. And really, that's what it comes down to. I choose to follow those things that make me happiest in life. And that means that uh, there are oftentimes going to be dictates and decrees handed down by people in certain positions of authority that uh, may interfere with that happiness. And as, as a human being, as a guy who's claiming his freedoms rather than begging for them, I reserve the right to ignore what they're saying. <laughs> that makes me a bad person in some people's eyes. But again, call me what you want. I don't care. This is The Brian Hyde Show. A trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hello there and welcome to the show. Hey, whether you're a seasoned wrong thinker or just wrong think curious, you have found the right place. This is a program built around the idea that it's good to understand the world around us and how we can make a difference in our own way. 
but it's also about owning your own worldview. So I'm not here to tell you what to think. I am here to suggest uh, some ideas or suggest some some ways of seeing things that uh, hopefully will shed light on what's happening. But ultimately, it's up to you as to whether or not you accept or adopt this into your own thinking. Uh, the program is made possible by great sponsors like LifesavingFood.com, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, HSLAmmo.com, SewingAndQuiltingCenter.com, and MonticelloCollege.org. thought we could start out with uh, just kind of a, a quick commentary on uh, the, the economic aspects of the crackdown that uh, is currently taking place in Canada. And, uh, and you know, the, the thing that's so chilling about this is everything that is happening there could very easily happen here as well. And Jeffrey Tucker from the Brownstone Institute actually has a great article on this, uh, and now it's economic warfare. He says, with the world reopening and even blue U.S. states and cities repealing mandates, how optimistic should we be? Well, he says, a little bit of optimism is warranted, but not that much. Because what we're seeing right now in Ottawa reveals the hegemonic depth of the system that gave us lockdowns and then mandates. Namely, it's now capable of freezing your accounts and essentially starving you and your family. It's economic warfare. Now, remember, this was just a wild conspiracy theory last year. But now it's very obvious that this is where many governments want to go. I mean, we've seen examples just in this past week. The truckers in Canada deployed the crowdfunding platform of GoFundMe. They raised $9 million, and then suddenly the platform said, well, we're not going to distribute the money yet, pending the release of a clear plan on what the truckers are going to do with it. Many of us immediately smelled a rat, and sure enough, a few days later, GoFundMe announced that it would not give the money to the truckers, but rather to other charities of its choosing. In other words, it would steal the money. Now, that outraged many people, among them Elon Musk, and the Internet blew up in fury. And at that point, GoFundMe returned all the money back to the donors. Well, in the next act of this drama, the truckers went to Give, Send, Go, a platform that seems more independent and that pledged to give the money to the truckers. With no promotion or even a clear link on Google on where to send money, this new method raised even more money. And this was entirely thanks to uncensored networks where people were sharing information. But the story was far from over. The platform was hit with a denial of, with denial of service attacks from uh, malicious actors. Then it was hacked and people's names released. And, of course, the press in Canada, as well as here in the U.S., is now going after people. Hey, our records show that uh, you made a donation. Would you like to comment uh, whether or not that was really you and why you supported this? crazy the thing went down hard it had their uh, you know go send or sorry give send go had to be rebuilt because of the attacks on it the data on the donors then was leaked to government then to canadian broadcasting corporation who contacted donors under the guise of doing a story on the funding very clear attempt at intimidation the minister of finance got into the act and essentially declared that anyone using these to provide funding to the truckers were engaging in illicit activity essentially terrorists. Without missing a beat, the Minister of Justice for Trudeau went further to declare that anyone who has given large figures through these platforms should be worried about having their bank accounts frozen. So there we have it on record. The Canadian government has declared that it can freeze anyone's bank account and seize the contents based on their political views or charitable actions. In the midst of all this, 
Trudeau declared emergency powers that allow the government to do this to all non-compliers and to do so without any court order. But this is the next step that was astonishing. Crypto. The platform TallyCoin somehow and almost miraculously navigated all the compliance regulations and became a viable way to use crypto to crowdfund, thus bypassing banks as long as you don't convert your crypto into dollars. Very quickly, the platform raised a million dollars for the truckers. Now, this was all put together by a group of truckers calling itself Hong Kong Hodel. That means, of course, hold crypto, don't sell. Almost immediately, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police's, uh, you know, Canada's FBI, sent letters to many crypto exchanges demanding that any assets flowing through their systems that are known to be intended as donations to the truckers must be reported immediately. At the same time, the truckers are being told to leave. Two leaders of the convoy have been arrested. By the way, you know what they're being charged with? Just, I don't know if you'll find this as, as ridiculous as I do, but um, they were charged with counseling to commit mischief. Mischief. The president, or I'm sorry, their prime minister invokes a wartime emergency powers act, an enabling act, much like its 1933 counterpart in, in uh, Weimar, Germany, because someone might be causing mischief. <sighs> Crazy. And Jeffrey Tucker says, yes, all these actions are clearly political. They're clearly totalitarian. They're relying fundamentally on the control of money and finance to shore up regime power and crush political opposition. Now, he says, for weeks now, I have been worried that Trudeau would try to pursue a Tiananmen Square solution. This was the strategy deployed in China in 1989 to forestall the type of regime meltdown that had characterized events in Eastern Europe and the former Soviet Empire. For a while, it appeared that regimes could be toppled if enough people gathered in the streets. China showed otherwise. Bullets, tanks, and arrests of key leaders are often enough to shore up control. Well, these days, a Tiananmen-style solution takes a different form. With financial intermediaries forced to do the state's bidding, rebellions can be put down with text, emails, and a few clicks on an interface. Your assets are frozen, then stolen. You're left without a job or any financial means at all. Jails aren't even necessary. Yes, crypto can help bypass the system, but it still has to deal with three huge barriers. Number one, the exchanges and platforms deal with enormous burdens in regulatory compliance. Number two, the on-ramps to obtaining crypto are ever more intrusive. And number three, the off-ramps to moving crypto out of digits and into cash are highly regulated. None of this is the fault of crypto. It's the failure of the transition. Now, he says, as an aside, the one word hardly spoken during this incredible drama is COVID. The light's going on. It was never really about a virus. It was never really about public health. The world is moving past the virus and left only with the massive, terrifying state machinery that emerged under the guise of public health, a principle which is oddly mutated into another priority, political health. Since 2013, he says, I've written about the possibility of a privatized monetary system. It seemed like a wonderful ideal. Someday we'll get there, surely, in one form or another, but the transition has become extremely complicated. As government authorities attempt to use their existing regulatory hold on conventional money, and regulated exchanges to institute a China-style social credit system. Even now, he says, I can't believe I just typed those sentences, which I used to only hear from very fringy commentators, but now the fringe is the fabric. 
Anyone who has not paid attention to the conspiracy theories of the last year has failed to anticipate most of the news. Jeffrey Tucker says many of the world's wisest minds have observed that the main means by which powerful states seize and retain control is through the realm of money. Guns help, prestige helps, but in the end, it's the control of money that keeps people in servitude. He says crypto was once for geeks only. Now it has become a tool for saving the working class from obliteration by hegemonic forces within the ruling class financial structure. The workers' revolution is taking a different path from what anyone in the 19th century could have ever imagined, from diesel to crypto to freedom, or so we can hope. I'll have a link to this story in the show notes at thebrianhideshow.com. I mean, did you, would you ever have thought this is where we would find ourselves? And I guess this is one of the reasons why I am such a fan of the idea of building parallel economies, parallel systems. And, and I'm, I'm stopping short of saying parallel government, because I really believe most of the governance that needs to take place can be done at the individual or the, the family level. Maybe a few things within the community and very, very little at the big centralized nation state, you know, kind of government uh, level. I don't know what to tell you. If, if you are concerned about, you know, well, that money I have in the bank, is it really mine? I'm asking those same kinds of questions. Is it really mine if I can't put my hands on it or if it is subject to being taken away from me at the whim of some bureaucrat and the click of some functionary's mouse? That's a heck of a place to find yourself. Tangible things, tools, land, seeds, gold, other precious metals, wink, wink. I think commodities may be a a safer bet right now than a lot of things. I'm watching crypto very close, though. I'd like to see how this one shakes out. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Just want to give a shout-out here to the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, one of my sponsors and definitely one of the folks you should be talking to if you are in the market for a home mortgage. Now, a lot of folks are moving to the Intermountain West, and if you've landed anywhere within the great state of Utah, you need to talk to Heather and her team at Patriot Home Mortgage. You can call her at 435-703-4522. Her office is at 619 South Bluff Street in St. George. Heather's NMLS ID is 715386, and yes, Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. Let the Heather Turner team help you get the loan you need without delay, because that's what she specializes in. So since we're talking a little bit about uh, the economic warfare that is now being visited upon the people participating in the uh, Canadian Freedom Convoy. And apparently there's there's an American Freedom Convoy that is looking to uh, depart on uh, February 23rd from California and make the drive to, uh, to the Washington, D.C. area. And I'm excited on the one hand. I, I think it, it could potentially be a very powerful message from, you know, the, the working class to the political class that, look, we hold the levers of power. Everything in every store arrives on a truck. So, you know, the, it's, it's not so much a matter of, look, you have to do what we say. 
If, if there was a general strike and truckers just sat down and said, nope, not going to work, you would see things very quickly start to adjust because you would see things like fuel become in short supply, food in short supply, mail in short supply. I mean, it's the whole nine yards. But let's focus for a moment on the social credit system that, uh, that has emerged. As, as uh, Jeffrey Tucker in the last segment said, you know, that was a conspiracy theory a year ago. Now it appears it's becoming a reality. I've got an article here from David Sachs. This was published on Barry Weiss's uh, Substack, explaining how the social credit system we've all heard about has just been implemented in Canada. Justin Trudeau's created a cast of economic untouchables, and the question is, can we stop this dystopian policy from taking hold in America? David Sachs says, last summer I warned readers of Common Sense that financial deplatforming would be the next wave of online censorship. Big tech companies like PayPal were already working with left-wing groups like the ADL and the SPLC to define lists of individuals and groups who should be denied service. As more and more similarly-minded tech companies followed suit, as happened with social media censorship, these deplorables would be deplatformed, debanked, and eventually denied access to the modern economy altogether as punishment for their unacceptable views. Well, that prediction has become reality. And David Sachs says, What I could not have anticipated is that it would first occur in our mild-mannered neighbor to the north, with the Canadian government itself directing the reprisals. Now, it remains to be seen whether Canada will be a bellwether for the U.S., but anyone who cares about the future of America as a place where citizens are free to protest their government needs to understand what has just occurred and work to stop it from taking root here. For the past three weeks, he says, thousands of truckers have gathered in Ottawa and along the Canadian-American border in protest of COVID restrictions and mandates. Rather than engage with them or listen to their concerns, Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau first denounced them as having unacceptable views, then he demonized them as white supremacists, racists, and swastika waivers. On Monday, the rhetoric turned to action when Trudeau invoked the Emergencies Act. This heretofore unused 1988 law gives the government virtually unlimited power for 30 days to deal with the crisis. Invoking the law under the present circumstances would require the threat or use of serious violence. Yet the vast majority of protesters have been entirely peaceful playing We Are the World and waving maple leaf flags. Indeed, the government has made little attempt to justify the need for emergency powers beyond Trudeau's frequent bemoaning of the truckers' alleged hateful rhetoric. His public safety minister, Marco uh, Mendocino, stated that such extraordinary measures were necessary due to intimidation, harassment, and expressions of hate. Now, perhaps he doesn't realize that none of these are listed in the law as valid reasons to invoke it. Then last Tuesday, Trudeau escalated things further when he issued a new directive called the Emergency Economic Measures Order, invoking a war on terror law called the Proceeds of Crime and Terrorist Financing Act. That order requires financial institutions, including banks, credit unions, co-ops, loan companies, trusts, even cryptocurrency wallets, to stop providing any financial or related services to anyone associated with the protest. In other words, a designated person. This has resulted in, according to the CBC, frozen accounts, stranded money, and canceled credit cards. Now, banks, according to this new order, have a duty to determine if one of their customers is a designated person. 
A designated person can refer to anyone who directly or indirectly participates in the protest, including donors who provide property to facilitate the protests through crowdfunding sites. In other words, a designated person can just as easily be a grandmother who donated $25 to support the truckers as well as what it could be one of the organizers of the convoy. And because the donor data to the crowdfunding site Give, Send, Go was hacked, and the leaked data shows that Canadians donated most of the $8 million raised, many thousands of law-abiding Canadians now face the prospect of financial retaliation and ruin merely for supporting an anti-government protest. Already a low-level government official in Ontario was fired after her $100 donation came to light. A gelato shop was forced to close when it received threats after its owner was revealed to have donated to the protest. On Wednesday, Justice Minister David Lametti went on Canadian television to say the quiet, pout, uh, quiet part aloud, rather, namely that anyone contributing to a pro-Trump movement should be worried about their bank accounts and other financial assets being frozen. Now, when these protesters or those that supported them end up in financial hardship because they lose their job, business, or bank account, what will happen to those who try to help them? Will Canadian financial institutions be forced to play six degrees of deplorables? The fear of being ensnared in the dragnet will surely have a chilling effect on the commercial prospects of those suspected of unacceptable views, creating a cast of untouchables whom no one will dare to transact with or help. B.J. Dichter, one of the protest organizers who had all of his bank accounts and credit cards frozen, expressed the sense of desperation, saying it feels like being banished from the medieval village, left to die. Now, David Sachs says, how did things get to this point? For years, ideologues have used accusations of bigotry to hound people from their jobs, kick them off social media, and rescind their right to participate in the online economy. However, he says, many observers shrugged off these cases as outliers, fringe examples that could be ignored because they affected unsympathetic individuals. But now we have a wide-ranging group of working-class people and their supporters who are being financially deplatformed for civil disobedience. The Canadian truckers have been so thoroughly defamed as racist and bigots by, medias, by media on both sides of the border that few are thinking about the nightmarish implications for ordinary citizens. For the most part, CBC, CNN, MSNBC, and the major newspapers in both countries have cheered and egged Trudeau on as he descends into authoritarianism, even as various Canadian provinces rescind the vaccine mandates that originally inspired the protests. Perhaps no one has been more enthusiastic than CNN contributor Juliette Kayem. She took to Twitter to encourage Trudeau's government to first slash the tires, empty the gas tanks, arrest the drivers, and later cancel their insurance, suspend their driver's licenses, prohibit any future regulatory verification for truckers, and other ideas that seemed extreme until Trudeau adopted several of them. Trust me, declared KM, I will not run out of ways to make this hurt. Now, one suspects Trudeau won't either, either, even though the coming end of the pandemic renders this entire dispute irrelevant. It's almost as if cruelty is the point. We're going to come back to this article in just a few moments. Again, I've got a link to this in the show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. If you haven't subscribed to my show notes, it's a very simple thing. All you have to do is go to my website, thebrianheidshow.com. Open up the show notes, click on the subscribe button. It'll ask for your email, which I will keep sacred. This will not be given or sold to anybody else. 
but I'll drop a copy of those notes in your email inbox every single day that I do the show. We'll be back in just a few moments. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And just like that, we are back. Sharing an article here from David Sachs. This was published on Barry Weiss's, Barry Weiss's uh, Substack. Excellent article about how the social credit system has arrived in Canada. Oh, yeah, we've heard about it in, in China. Thought, boy, it must suck to live in China under a social credit system where the government can freeze you out if you're not doing exactly what, uh, what you're supposed to do. Funny thing about this is uh, the, the U.K. has a television series called Black Mirror, kind of a really dark, dystopian science fiction. I mean, it's, it's edgy. But uh, one, of the, one of my favorite episodes has to do with this social credit system and how people who, uh, whose credit rating or their, their, their social credits are falling find it almost impossible to work within the system. You are shut out from everything. Oh, you want to get on the flight? Sorry, this flight is only reserved for people with a uh, credit limit of this or higher. Oh, you need a rental car? I'm sorry, we can't give you one of our good ones, but we've got this crappy outmoded one because your social credits are really low. One of the most enlightening parts of that episode is uh, the, the protagonist as she's you know, trying to get to her friend's wedding and running into all of these problems because her social credit uh, rating is dropping. Wow, she meets a lady who, who totally dropped out of the social credit system and talks about how that was how she became free. There's some language, but I think uh, you might find you might find something very worthwhile in this lady's uh, speech that she gives to to this young girl who's who's watching her social credit just evaporate. Maybe it's a system I don't really want to be a part of. But like this uh, like one of the organizers of the convoy up in Canada was saying, this is like being forced out of the medieval village and left to starve. David Sachs says the self-conception of these pundits and politicians who push the cruelty of shutting people down and punishing them for holding views that uh, we do not agree with could not be more at odds with reality. He says the people who are, are celebrating this pose as defenders of democracy while invoking emergency powers without legislative or public debate or even without an emergency for that matter. They claim that diversity and tolerance are their highest values while insisting that only one political point of view is acceptable and censoring the alternatives. Above all, progressive elites see themselves as the champions of the disadvantaged while demonizing working-class men and women whose economic livelihoods have been devastated by their draconian COVID policies. Now, he says the elites will soon move on to the next Twitter outrage, but the people of Canada will be living with the consequences of Trudeau's actions long after every last truck has been towed and the last of the protesters clear, cleared by tear gas, stun grenades, and mounted police on horseback. Indeed, over the weekend, the Ottawa police chief told reporters that they will be pursuing protesters for weeks and months to come. If you are involved in this protest, we will actively look to identify you and follow up with financial sanctions and criminal charges. Absolutely. Dang. That's uh, that's quite an escalation. David Sachs says, well, the 
the financial or while the emergency order rather only authorizes the freezing of assets for 30 days, banks and financial institutions will be wary of resuming business relationships with any designated person or anyone they think could be one in the future. Confident that these private businesses will do their dirty work for them, the government will likely back off, but the chilling effect on political dissent will remain. It's a Western version of China's social credit system that does not altogether prohibit political dissent, but makes it so costly that it becomes impractical to the ordinary citizen. Now, this brings us to the question, how do we stop this dystopian policy from taking root here in the United States? David Sachs says, some of my friends in the tech world say decentralized blockchain and cryptocurrency offer an answer. That might be true for pseudonymous computer programmers who can do gig work from anywhere in the world, but it won't help the truck drivers who operate in the real world under the supervision of the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. The real answer lies in politics and the law. Policymakers need to build safeguards into our laws that protect citizens' financial rights against some future emergency that would be used as the excuse to take them away. Just as University of Chicago professor Richard Epstein proposed that the largest social media companies should be treated as common carriers to prohibit them from restricting speech, we may need to prohibit the largest financial institutions from denying citizens access to the financial system just because they dislike their politics. In order to prevent discrimination on the basis of creed, political beliefs may need to become a protected class. And we must also stop the definition creep around terrorism, a term whose use has become so elastic that it now even includes angry moms fighting school boards. Just this month, the Department of Homeland Security made a little notice change to its definition of domestic terrorism, citing widespread online proliferation of false or misleading narratives regarding unsubstantiated widespread election fraud and COVID-19 as a key driver of what it deemed a heightened domestic terror threat environment. As we've seen for over 20 years, terrorism is the magic word by which any curtailment of rights and expansion of government power can be justified. Now, David Sachs says American citizens must never be labeled terrorists simply for exercising their constitutional rights to speak freely, to worship freely, or to assemble peaceably in a protest. Of course, an act of violence committed in service to a radical cause is terrorism, whether it's committed in Baghdad or in Brooklyn. But constitutionally protected speech alone is not. And contrary to the safetyism practiced by university administrators and HR departments, speech is not violence. A citizen posting on social media, even if she is questioning vaccines or railing against mask mandates, is not fomenting terrorism. He concludes by saying those of us in the free world have been asked to suspend many of our freedoms for the sake of our collective health during this pandemic. But asking us to continue our right to to compromise, rather, our right to peaceful protest or to have our finances seized without due process of law in the name of a fake emergency, that can never be made normal. In the words of Justice Gorish, even if the Constitution has taken a holiday during this pandemic, it cannot become a sabbatical. That's some pretty solid, uh, pretty solid thinking right there. So watching the, the intensely slanted coverage coming out of Canada, it kind of makes you wonder, you know, the, the, the way that other Western leaders have just 
seemingly uh, nodded their heads or, or turned a blind eye to the abuse going on in Canada can make you feel kind of powerless. And I think that's the intent. See, you are powerless. We have all the power. We hold all the cards. Got an article here by J.B. Shirk, published on AmericanThinker.com. The power of the powerless is real. He says, one of the most challenging obstacles working against ordinary citizens in the West is the self-satisfying presumption that Western institutions and philosophies are inherently (laughs) immune from the rise of totalitarianism. Now, this is an understandable blind spot. Their identities have been forged to various degrees in the great traditions of enlightenment notions of liberty, free speech, natural rights. Surely the victors over communism, fascism, and Nazism cannot then fall victim to the madness of those same philosophies collapsing their systems from within. This us-them self-delusion has kept the citizenry from from recognizing tyranny inside its gates. Now, Shirk says it's good for people to take pride in the achievements and histories of their nation states. It's natural for the inhabitants of countries founded in fights for freedom to assume that the costs of obtaining that freedom are behind them and not ahead. It's easy to self-define the victors of World War II as cultures standing firmly opposed to authoritarianism. To believe that nations not bound by the Iron Curtain would never choose to build their own and to assume that millions of graves and monuments attesting to the great human sacrifices over the past century in the defense of freedom are somehow sufficient safeguards against future generations ever detouring from the blessings of human liberty. But he says all of these good and natural and easy mental prisms become mental prisons when they keep us from seeing what's happening in our own backyards. Now specifically, he says, the growing tyranny in the West has not happened overnight. It did not suddenly arrive at our doorsteps with the Chinese flu. It's been a nightmare decades in the making, but the difference today is that previously slumbering citizens, once sublimely content in the normal humdrum of their lives, are waking up to realize that the enemies from our past have returned with a vengeance. Free speech is treated as dangerous. Western governments, corporations, social media platforms engage in rampant censorship. Race and sexual identity are used as the defining attributes of a person person to the exclusion of their talent, character, and achievement. Teachers' unions openly demand the right to indoctrinate children according to the interests of the state. Parents are threatened for believing that their children belong to them. The criminal justice system is used as a place to punish political opponents and protect political friends. Religious expression is outlawed. Leftist secularized religion is imposed. Freedom is disparaged as right-wing or racist. Coercion has replaced consent. Victimhood has replaced virtue. Social justice has replaced real justice. And correct thinking has been replaced by free thinking. We'll come back to this in a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I'm going to get back to J.B. Shirk's article about the power of the powerless is real here in just a few moments. First off, I have to say a word or two about SewingAndQuiltingCenter.com. Now, they are located in St. George, Utah, a family-owned business that's been in operation since 1984. And just so you know, this is the place to go if you are looking for 
a sewing machine, if you're looking for a quilting, a long-arm quilting machine, if you're looking for an embroidery machine, they've got it. Full spectrum of all the sewing machines and and the, the fabric and things that you need. But here's the really cool part. If you're kind of a noob and you want to learn how to use your machine correctly, they'll teach you. Part of buying through them is that you get classes that will that never expire. You can go back and they'll show you if you need to refresh your course on how to use your machine to its fullest. And they can also service whatever it is you have, whether you bought it from them or not. They're certified technicians. And, you know, sewing machines start as little as $199. Now, as a kid, I did not particularly care to wear the homemade clothes that my mom made, but... I look back on it now and I realize that was really a great skill to have. And frankly, just because it didn't go so well with my tough skins, you know, the epitome of fashion, maybe I I should have been a little more open-minded. But I've seen the quilts that my mom has made over the years. This is part of her legacy. And I think this is a really neat, I want to say hobby, but, but it could even go far beyond a hobby. So if it's something that you or someone you love has interest in, sewingandquiltingcenter.com. They're located in St. George, Utah, and they will definitely take care of you. J.B. Shirk, in outlining how the power of the powerless is real, makes the observation that the protection of government has become more important than, than the protection of human rights. And this is what we're seeing play out in Canada, and very likely we'll see playing out uh, here shortly in the U.S., as more and more people wake up and realize, hey, I'm tired of being pushed around. I'm tired of being told you will bend the knee to this. He says, for the newly awakened, there's a tendency to see all this carnage for the first time with fresh eyes and become overwhelmed by the sheer magnitude of the rot. The corruption, criminality, and chaos have infiltrated everything once held dear. And so so to some people, the future seems hopelessly lost. But he says, that hopelessness, however, is not based in reality but rather the us-them self-delusion that tyranny could not happen here. It's not easy to accept that the great sacrifices of the past made in the struggle for human freedom have once again been squandered by a new generation of despots. It's a necessary first step, though, before the righteous can throw themselves into the fight and get back to work. And once people come to terms with the fact that tyranny not only could happen here, but it is happening here, Well, then they realize the struggle has only really begun in earnest. For instance, he asks, does anyone really think the perverse and heavy-handed responses by the American government to the January 6th election protesters is a sign of strength? Does anyone believe that the Canadian government's decision to enact emergency powers and martial law to manhandle peaceful demonstrators protesting medical mandates showcases institutional confidence? He's got a good point. Do the U.K. government's attempts to paint Brexit as a Russian operation project, does that uh, create project healthy trust uh, in, uh, in elections? When French President Emmanuel Macron feels compelled to go politicking with tear gas and heavy armored vehicles near his side, does he strike yellow vest-wearing Europeans as someone who's fully in control? Does the Department of Justice's habitual harassment of conservatives across the United States for their beliefs or its repeated attempts to put President Trump in criminal jeopardy really seem like the actions of a federal system secure in its future? Well, the answer is of course not. Western governments, he says, are terrified of their people today. They are terrified of what their people believe or else they wouldn't feel compelled to criminalize thoughts as hateful 
They are scared to death of what their people might say to each other, or else they wouldn't engage in mass surveillance and blatant censorship. They are fearful of free and fair elections, or else they wouldn't work so hard to manipulate and undermine them. And they're absolutely petrified of a future where cryptocurrencies and blockchain technologies free their citizens from the consolidated control imposed by central banks and spendthrift treasuries. If discouraged and demoralized Westerners doubt that they have more power right now than their governments could ever possess, then take a hard look at the obscene lengths to which those governments have gone in order to maintain and preserve their jurisdiction. Embracing tyranny under the sickening pretense of preserving democracy betrays just how weak these governments have become. Vaclav Havel, dissident, political prisoner, and eventual president of Czechoslovakia and the Czech Republic, wrote a sledgehammer of an essay in the late 1970s entitled The Power of the Powerless. In that indictment against the oppressive nature of communist regimes, he demystified totalitarianism as a system that forces citizens to live within a lie. What each citizen secretly believes does not matter. Whether a citizen privately contests in his mind the state's constructed truths is irrelevant. What is crucial for totalitarianism, however, is that each citizen repeats the state's lies, lives within the system based upon those lies, and perpetuates that system of lies in everyday life. He uses the example of a worker displaying, or a grocer rather, displaying a Workers of the World Unite sign because failure to do so could be seen as a sign of disloyalty to the state. By displaying it, the grocer isn't expressing truth or personal enthusiasm for a cause, but rather proving, proving rather his humiliating submission to a system of control. If I can be blunt, this is, this is how I see face masks. It's about proving your submission. And I'm one of the individuals who's been saying that from the very beginning. This is much more of a symbol of compliance than it is about your safety. I don't mean any disrespect to those of you wearing masks. If you feel like you're at risk, you do it. But the idea that we had to force it and that people could be conditioned to look down on those who don't wear it, it was about compliance. J.B. Shirk says, now consider all the slogans that we daily encounter from government and corporate mouthpieces alike, like Black Lives Matter, Build Back Better, Trans Rights or Human Rights, The Science is Settled, Save the Earth, Stop Global Warming, The War on Women is Real, We're All in This Together, Abortion is Healthcare, My Body, My Choice. He says, it doesn't matter how vapid, factually incorrect or contradictory the political slogan what matters is that all of us repeat them obediently to prove our allegiance and faith, our allegiance to and faith in the system. And therein lies the key to our salvation. Now listen close. This is the solution. Question the lies and you question the system. Push back against the state's monopoly over truth and you cripple the state's legitimacy. Celebrate individuality and you fracture the mental prison of groupthink. Live in truth and you erode the control of state dogma. When people realize that they individually strengthen the state by submitting to its lies, people then understand that the whole artifice of the system survives purely through their individual consent. At that point, it becomes obvious that the small number of people at the top of the system are not really in control at all. It's the large population, psychologically abused and tormented by their government, that wields power over 
that wields power rather when it chooses. Once the powerless have this epiphany, they alone control their destiny. I mean, could it be that simple? I think the answer is yes. J.B. Shirk says, identify tyranny, question lies, resist oppression, assert truth, empower the powerless, destroy the system's illusion of control. Be not afraid. It's that simple. Now, if you're feeling overwhelmed at the prospect, okay, I get it, I get it, I see, I see where it might work, but how do I start? Where do I begin? And the answer to that question is right where you're standing. Don't participate in the lie. Don't repeat the lies. Don't don't be cowed into silence and don't be cowed into compliance for something that you do not believe in or that you do not support. This doesn't mean you have to, you know, dress up like a one-man band and, you know, march around like Dick Van Dyke and Mary Poppins, you know, um, drawing attention to yourself. I submit that if you are the kind of person who is willing to just live as a free man or free woman, that will be enough to communicate to the people around you that you're not someone who buys into the lie. Better still, it communicates that you are not someone who can be intimidated into submission. You don't have to go out and confront people. You don't have to go punch them in the face you know, to, to show them that you're serious. All you have to do is know what the principles and practices of liberty are. That does require some study, okay? It's not something you're going to pick up by osmosis. Know those principles, live them openly and unapologetically, and the people around you will get the message. Yeah, some will be irritated. Others are going to take courage and will likewise start living as free individuals themselves because you showed them it could be done. This is The Brian Hyde Show.